Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, something a little different. We are going to dive into the nature of athleticism. What is athleticism? How, how philosophical can we get? No, um, we're, we're going to get actually very technical and scientific and um, really unpack this idea of athleticism being more than just a monolithic kind of fuzzy topic that simply refers to someone's vertical leap or how explosive they are running in a straight line or something like that. The, the, the big muscle sort of concept of athleticism. And to do that, I could think of no one better straight down into the studio. We are live in studio in Los Angeles coming down from Santa Barbara, the director of biomechanics at P3, Eric Leidersdorf. Eric, thanks for, thanks for coming by. No, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The idea here for me, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, in my sort of old world, in my background, we talk a lot about intelligence. And intelligence is this um, very multifaceted, complex term that gets thrown around, like, oh, this person has intelligence and this person doesn't. But it turns out that there's way more going on there. There are a lot of subcomponents of intelligence uh, that kind of fit into that larger term. And I think athleticism, as we've discussed a little off air, athleticism has that same kind of thing where it's a high level term, but it's often used only to say, maybe talk about vertical leap or something like that, but it's really far more complex. There's really, you know, uh, reaction time and different planes of movements and recovery and change, all, all these things um, that, you know, kind of you spend your time studying and playing in. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly what we do, I think. Um, you know, there are these very traditional measures of athleticism that uh, that you reference, and you know, especially for uh, you know for those of us who follow the NBA closely, a lot of that has to do with how well an athlete jumps, right? So looking at a, a vertical leap or uh, or an approach, and I think um, yeah, these are kind of the the more commonly discussed uh, measures of athleticism. But it, it, that all comes from a pretty narrow uh, definition of the term. I think there, as as you referenced, there are. Uh, many factors that make a basketball player a competent athlete for their sport or for their position. Um, and, yeah, I think there's uh, a bit more to the equation than um, just how well an athlete jumps. And that's where we spend a lot of our time is diving into the details, studying what makes uh, athletes effective or, in some cases, not effective in all of these different uh, different planes or uh, just areas of movement. Right. So let's start with maybe just defining how you see athleticism. It's It's clearly broader than you know just your vertical jump or just your sprinting speed or explosiveness or something like that how do you both in as someone who works in this field and works in biomechanics but even at p3 how do you guys construct this idea of athleticism and break it down into different components yeah so you know for for us it all kind of dials back to our assessment process and so when we were uh you know, we were coming up with what this process looks like, what this assessment looks like, rather. Um, you know, really what we tried to think about are what are the, the physical systems that are necessary or used or stressed within uh, a basketball game, an elite-level basketball game. Um, and for us, I think we wanted our assessment to cover aspects of uh, vertical plane movement, of jumping. And, you know, look, no one's going to stand here and deny that that's a very important facet of, of the game. But there are certainly a lot of lateral plane movement, and there are various different types of change direction tasks that uh, NBA players are asked to do. And we wanted our assessment to to capture, um, you know, all of these uh, parameters in a, in a lab setting where we can control for uh, you know, for any confounds that, that might exist. And so, um, you know, an athlete's uh, first time when they come into to P3, uh, worst day of their life, right? They have to spend <laughs> about two hours with myself and, and my team and go through, um, you know, everything. Full warm-up that's standardized for, uh, you know, for a basketball player. We go through mobility screen, so measuring ranges of motion through uh, the ankles, through the hips, things along those lines. But then also, um, you know, we spend a lot of the time uh, with the athlete, 
um, on force plates, which assess how hard an athlete pushes in the ground, and then uh, motion capture, uh, which is you know the same technology they use to make a video game. Um, and so, we, so we got dots on the screen. And, exactly, yeah. we've got we've got dots. We've got guys. You know, we're really trying to digitize a skeletal model of the athlete and get very granular with studying uh, again, not just how high a guy can jump, but what are these. Uh, more detailed biomechanical measures that let athletes uh, perform well laterally or vertically or in a change of direction setting, things along those lines. So we've got, uh, you know, accelerating, but we also have decelerating. Um, we've got, when you think of change of direction on the basketball court, you think of a crossover, hesitation, right. these kinds of things, um, a cut, you know, coming off screens or whatever. And then all of this, you know, sort of syncs up with other components of athleticism that you guys maybe not even, you know, aren't even able to touch into, which is things like coordination or balance or reaction time. And all of that, at least to me, sits under this umbrella of this thing we call athleticism for, you know, how you how you move your body in space in your in your sport. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, uh, that's right on, right? It's, it's a very complex web of these different systems interacting. And it you know, various points in the game, you're going to have to call on these different, uh, you know, you're going to have to achieve these different actions. Um, and yeah, figuring out how that all kind of links together is where we try to spend, uh, spend most of our time, right? It's, you know, it, it's a bit more nuanced than just how well does an athlete jump. Um, you know, while some of those tests are certainly valid, right, they are assessing what they're intending, you know, in- intended to assess. Um, you know, extrapolating from those findings to how effective an athlete can be on an NBA court, you know, it's not a not a linear process. So, so let's talk about that more, even just taking the vertical leap as an example. When we all turn on the television in June and whoever the the analyst du jour is up there, it's, you know, <laughs> probably Jay Billis or someone, and they're on, they're on screen and they're excited and they're saying, oh, here's this guy that just got drafted and he has a 38-inch vertical leap or whatever. Um that is simply the output of someone in a controlled setting, you know, off a drop step or whatever the command is, whatever the whatever the measurement tool is, all of the players going through that, jumping up as high as he can with his arm out or whatever. That's mm-hmm. the quote unquote vertical leap. Sure. But you guys can go, I mean, when we actually unpack athleticism, we can we can think about what's functional on the court. And we can start to look at things like how quick the athlete gets off the floor, right? right. Um, is it a one-foot jump? Is it a two-foot jump? Sure. Um, is it a first jump? Is it a second jump? And then really, you know, functionally, how do these things translate out to the court where you're either challenging a shot at the rim, you're grabbing a rebound, you're trying to finish, whatever. To me, this is the part of athleticism that's lost in the conversation. So, so speak to that a little bit more about how you guys can actually – unpack that and go way beyond the he's got a 38 inch vertical <laughs> right i think uh yeah there are you know there are really kind of two ways to approach the this topic that you've brought up the first um you know going back to the assessment if we're just talking about analyzing movement in the the vertical plane um you know we, we think of a lot of our tests living on this clinical to sport specific spectrum um where a, you know a very clinical test is something that's done you know consistently in academic research like mm-hmm. a vertical jump, like counter room jump or a drop jump. Um, it's very controlled. It is. Yeah. It is. And then a, a, a more sports specific test would be like a full run up and jump and approach jump or a drop step and jump, things that are a little more uh, unique to basketball, right? And so I think by stacking an athlete's performance on these tests up next to each other, you get a better picture of which physical systems maybe work more effectively for that athlete and perhaps which things will translate more efficiently, uh, effectively rather to uh, performance on court, but you know, for for us, um, I think where we get most of our insight into this question comes from uh, you know the the amount of data that's generated from an assessment, right? So with the uh, the video game tech, um, really what we're we're seeing from uh, from from these uh, yeah from these outputs is not just a 38 inch vert, right? But we're seeing um, down to joint flexions, flexion velocities, mm. and accelerations. Um, you know, things that get very uh, technical, very engineering in uh, you know, in, in nature. Um, and by, you know, lining all those things up, we're seeing, you know, 150 to 200, uh, you know, variables per athlete per movement. Um, and by identifying, you know, kind of which of these factors, one relate to jump height, but also, you know, just kind of fit the eye test for fitting with basketball. We can see where certain outliers might, might show up. So you, you, you touched on this, but you would have things like, uh, speed off the ground or, um, those for those fancy force plates, right? They're measuring, you know, how much force you're 
you're, correct me if I'm wrong here, right? They're measuring how much force you're displacing down into the earth beneath you. Yep. Um, so you have all these variables, but even even as an easy thing to bite off for the layperson, it's like, well, if you have a 38-inch vertical leap and it takes you a second to get off the ground, that's probably not as functional as if you have a 38-inch vertical leap and it takes you half a second to get off the ground. Right. That's stuff you guys are measuring and, you know, functionally for the quote-unquote athleticism of the game that's that's pretty important that distinction yeah i think you know if you look at uh you know the example you're bringing up is like the the combine box score at that point right right, where two guys show up with 38 inch verts and that you know that's uh look they both look like they jump very well i love that the combine box score yeah Yeah. i think it's i think it's a real thing right it's a um you know at least as far as discourse is concerned though you know that gets discussed that would get discussed the same way i think what we'll you know what we're seeing and we've worked um, now with a little over uh, 600 athletes who have spent time in the NBA, and you know the professional number goes you know a little over 800. And that's 600 athletes. Just for some perspective, that's over half the league, right? That's yeah. So it's, you know, at, at, I think at present date we're looking at 60 percent of athletes currently on rosters. But going back in in history, guys who have spent time in the NBA were going yeah you know over over 600. Got it. Um, so we, we have some nice context there. But what we can uh, yeah what, what we can really do. Um, with those numbers is we can see, look, if, if guys show up and two of them are reaching 38 inches the same way, um, mechanically how they get there, if you watch them jump, you're going to, even with the eye, just be able to pick out, you know, some very discernible differences between the two. Um, where that gets interesting for us is we can put some numbers behind this and start to see maybe which physical parameters or physical systems are more translatable to, uh, life in the NBA, um, and which, you know, unfortunately for some are, are not cause it's, yeah, I think there's uh, some stat out there, and I might butcher this a little bit, but um, you know, of all the guys who've jumped 40 inches or more at the NBA Combine, I think you know, there's 40 plus, maybe, maybe two of them have become all stars. So it's a just because you have the system, hmm. maybe you're not able to leverage it effectively all the time, and that probably transpires, uh, you know, on on court during 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 play. Yeah, well, there's more to more to basketball, you know, than just jumping really high and there is that. In a vertical plane. Yes, it looks um, good in layup lines. So. Yeah. So okay. So what are some examples of athletes who have excelled in this area you've had some insight you know off air we were talking about Zach Levine a little bit you know like what's what's a great example of something that just goes beyond that combine box score when it comes to something raw and explosive like like vertical jump yeah so you know one of the um on one of the first studies we we did um was trying to link uh, a lot of our biomechanical data right to these joint velocities or force produced or you know power generated link that to actual vertical plane displacement how well an athlete can jump hmm. um, and so what we're you know what we what we found when uh, we ran these studies is that there are you know a handful of factors that really help separate your best jumpers from you know the rest of us at that point um, and I think from guys like Zach uh, who's probably you know uh, off the top of my head, at least, he's probably the most impressive vertical plane athlete we've ever seen. Wow. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's incredible. Yeah. Uh, for him, single leg, double leg, doesn't matter what environment he's in, he can he can fly. Uh, and, he, you know, single leg is what everyone remembers from the dunk contest because mm-hmm. those are, you know, the, the, those dunks are, are poetry. But, um, you know, you put him in any environment, he's able to, uh, yeah, he just ticks the boxes for um, these mechanical parameters that really drive an athlete in the vertical plane. He's, he's exceptional uh, in that domain. So another quote-unquote exceptional athlete who you've looked at is Zion Williamson right now but you you guys had him if I'm remembering you had him a couple years ago uh talk about what you saw in this vertical plane with with Zion yeah uh so Zion you know yeah we saw him before before he went out to college um and he is fascinating um because in our you know a lot of you know i think you've you know pointed out some of his his second jump ability how quickly he gets off the ground as well um and for for someone like zion we have a test that you know mimics that to a degree drop jump you drop off a box land on the ground and jump up as high as you can uh so are you jumping off the box you literally just the box is a certain height 30 inches or whatever you drop off it and then you jump yeah just drop off it just drop off it um and so for for zion right you know rebounding on this on on this jump uh, he puts more force in the ground. Uh, yeah, and this was a high schooler. Puts more force in the ground than anyone in the NBA we'd ever seen to that point. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and this is a look, Seven, seventeen year old or something. That's it. You're, yeah. you're looking at a high school kid. You know, for for one. Um, but you know, he's uh, yeah, he, he's he's. You're also looking at him physically and just what a what a specimen he is. Um, and seeing you know 
an athlete like that move the way that he does is really, uh, really, really rare, which, um, look, you need to watch him for 10 minutes and you can see that on court as well. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about some athletes that maybe aren't as known for being quote unquote athletic or they don't have that same kind of like traditional explosion. Maybe someone like uh, Nikola Jokic, right? I think you guys have been able to take a look at him. Where Where is he sort of exceptional or where does he excel athletically in a place that's different from because he's often labeled right as someone who's who's um what are they i got the term earlier doughy right they (laughs) think of him as a doughy sort of slow soft athlete but that's again just thinking about athleticism as this very simple construct of like vertical or explosive movement where where else does Jokic excel um, outside of those traditional constructs yeah, that's you know that's where the kind of the volume of ge- of, of data generated over the course of an assessment uh, you know becomes of, of value for us. I think where we can again go beyond these more conventional measures of just displacement, which you know Nikola is not going to win that battle um, against someone like an Andre Drummond. But if uh, you know because we're able to um, you know study so many variables over the course of a series of movements, um, the one thing that you know stood out about Nikola, and this was you know this, this goes back a few years as well. Um, was his ability to get off the ground quickly was actually really impressive. Hmm. So um, when you look at, uh, yeah, again, these more traditional measures of athleticism, he's not going to show up. But there are some things that he's able to do physically that probably let him uh, or probably put him in a position to to succeed. Um, you know, combine that with his just, you know, basketball savant abilities and it's you know it, it all starts to work for him. So do you guys, I mean, when you say basketball savant abilities, that sort of takes me back into my academic background where I'm thinking about, okay, you have reaction time, right? You have coordination, you have hand-eye coordination, you have all these things that when we talk about his savant likeness, I think that coupled with the way he maps the court, right? His, His ability to take objects in space and understand where they are and anticipate where they are combined with his hands and his hand-eye coordination now you've got all the beautiful passing and the you know these little flip shots and things like that like do you do you guys get into that at all how does that bake into the concept that we're talking about here with athleticism as as a larger concept yeah i think uh that's where it gets really difficult um you know certain things like coordination uh you know just almost like kinesthetic awareness. These are things that I think we've tried to study, but are frankly really difficult to study well. Mm. Um, and so for someone like Nicola, that, yeah, that's look, that, that's where some of his magic comes in. Um, we can do things like assess his ability to get off the ground quickly, um, or we can find these measures maybe when we're not quite looking for them that he really tops the charts on, which maybe gives us some indication that there is something uh, that works to his advantage from a physical perspective, but um, look, there are just certain things that are difficult to measure for us, uh, and the, you know, he, the, probably the the areas where he excels most um, tend to fall in in that domain. Um, you know, now with with him, the other X factor is he's his size. He's big, right? He's very big. Uh, so for for him, um, look, if he can get off the ground quickly, he doesn't need to jump an extra three inches because he's huge and he's already there. Right. He's 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 seven feet tall or whatever. He's got long arms, yep. and so quick release points and and the other thing is not only is he vertically tall but he's got a lot of mass yep and he uses that in his game i've talked about this before with Jokic, where he will just bludgeon people in the post back them down lean on him you uh, lean on them and use his weight against them yep. and then maybe that connects to something like quick quick jumping quick release points all that where he can get these little shots off around players who if you if you line up their i'm going to come back to it if you line up their combine box score yeah Maybe yeah. you're going, oh well, he's he's going to get his stuff sent, but it's like, no, he's no. going to he's going to go down there and he's going to he's going to go to work. Yeah, I, look, we we talk a lot uh, at work about how look we we just try and apply engineering or physics based principles to studying how all of these athletes move, and you know, if we kind of break down what each of these terms looks like, not to get too physics heavy, um, but force is important, right? How hard you can push something is important. A guy like Nikola can push in the ground pretty hard. We talked about it with Zion too, right? There are these, there, there are these underpinning factors that, uh, you know, certain athletes can tap into as almost a, um, yeah, almost like a, you know, an athletic, uh, quality that they possess that many of their peers don't. Um, and it's not always the obvious, you know, 45 inch vert that, um, right, that this right. relates to. So, so for those who are keeping score, because I've gotten in trouble for this before, that was Eric bringing up physics 
and Eric bringing up force <clears throat> and alluding to that. I'm not going to do any equations, okay? This is going to be equation-free for me. You may have some equations, I but... Will, yeah, I'll make no guarantees. Okay, That's just want to... I've gotten in yeah. trouble with the, uh, with the audience sometimes for too much physics. But, of course, physics does relate to athleticism, and since we're talking about athleticism, the sponsor of today's pod, fittingly, is The Athletic. If you want a free week trial and 50% off that annual subscription price, 50% off, head on over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod to cash in on that deal. Theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. If you're not familiar with The Athletic, regular listeners know I talk about them all the time. They are a, a network. They cover every sport, soccer, basketball, baseball, you name it. And then within our basketball world, they've got all 30 teams blanketed with great local coverage, guys that use uh, data, they'll use film, they they follow the team, you'll get the insider stories, and then they have big national names as well, Sam Amick, John Hollinger, uh, David Aldridge, you hear me talk about these guys. What I do is I customize the athletic app with the writers that I want, wake up in the morning, flip on the phone, and you get the stories from the latest and greatest things that they've written around the association. The app also pushes uh, major popular stories to the front of your feed as well. So you get kind of a customized experience to stay up to date with not only your team, but the latest happenings around the league. The app is ad-free, so if you don't want to listen to ad reads like this one, boy, that's did I just break the fourth wall of advertising in the middle of the podcast um i don't know what i'm doing but one of the best ways to support this podcast is to support our sponsors and so if you're interested head on over it's theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod 50 off the subscription price and a free week trial how about another type of athleticism maybe someone like james harden or luka Doncic? Sure. like you know they again don't have traditional classic, I'm going to come down the lane and jump over you and dunk on you. But they, I think those are two examples of guys who have excelled in other areas um, for the sample, you know, that that sample of 600 athletes that you have. Yep. Talk, talk a little bit about where they're so good. Yeah, I've, yeah I'm going to dig myself in a hole and bring up more physics terminology <laughs> here. But if, you know, if... if it's, it's, it's okay, 2-0. Yeah, all right. Uh, but if if we go, uh, you know, back to the traditional measures, right, vertical jump, these are all kind of more accelerative-based tests, right? These are more vertical acceleration-based tests. Deceleration um, is kind of the, you know, the, the flip side of that coin, where if acceleration, you're studying 0 to 60, right, the athlete's ability to, to get up to top speed quickly. Uh, for deceleration, we're looking at the opposite, right? And this is where uh, you know, Harden and Luca really start to separate themselves from the pack uh, with respect to the athletes that we've that we've assessed. So um, both Harden and Luca really uh, do an incredible job of generating force when they're slowing down. Um, so their ability to slow down is very abrupt. And if you think about having the ball in your hands, one way to create space, you know, from a defender if you're not going to drive by them is to stop quicker than your defender can. If your defender's still moving, that's just inherently going to help create some some space for you at that point. Yeah, and of course those two guys are known as master practitioners of the step back, which plugs into this dimension of athleticism. It's not necessarily that you are uh, exploding past a guy with the first step. It's that your brakes allow you to not only create that space, but I mean, Luca will put together, I, I think him maybe even more so than Harden sometimes will put together a string of moves where stopping, starting, and these abrupt breaking points give him a, a major advantage, change of direction advantage or whatnot over his opponent. And it's a kind of athleticism that uh, is certainly not thought of traditionally, but has a huge transfer to success on the basketball court. Yeah, there, there's no question. That was actually really uh, interesting for us with Luca because um, we've seen him going back to when he was uh, 15 or 16 years old. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, we, we've seen, uh, yeah, we, we saw Luca when he was just kind of breaking in with the uh, Real Madrid um, squad. The so. Doe Doncic. <laughs> uh, so for, for Luca, what was fascinating with him is, is exactly what you just hit on. Uh, vertical traditional measures, fine, um, but they're not going to, you know, not going to win him any awards. I think um, what we noticed early on, and some of this was probably inspired by having, you know, seen uh, seen James as well, um, was Luca's ability to generate force during this phase was something that uh, he showed, um, you know, a lot of prowess in very early on at a, you know, at a pretty young age. And it's also something that he's 
you know, developed over the course of, uh, yeah, over the course of the past, you know, what is that going to be five, you know, four or five years, give or take. So maybe you can speak, I don't know if you want to speak to it with Luca specifically or just in general, but the idea of an athlete coming in, you identify some weakness or area you want to improve. And then what actually happens to improve that? You know, I'm, I'm imagining something like, uh, you know, we want to improve the way this athlete uses his hip joint or something like that. What, what is the, take us behind the scenes on, on where we're at. Like, what can you actually do in that vein? Yeah, that's exactly the process we go through. So coming out the end of an assessment on, on our biomechanics team, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, the true nature of our job is to, to quantify aspects of athleticism uh, that to this point have been qualitative, right? So that means, uh, you know, studying variables related to performance, but that also means studying variables re- related to uh, risk of injury. And so for, for all of these things, we've, uh, we have kind of defined terminology for uh, training targets, right? So when an athlete comes in, especially now having some nice context behind these numbers, what we can see um, is when an athlete walks through our doors after going through uh, the assessment process, you know, these three or four areas really show up as, uh, you know, needing some work or grading out as below average or below where, you know, a team or an athlete or his representative wants them to be. Um, and those become, uh, yeah, very discrete targets that our coaches can address through through training. This is not something that's probably going to get addressed by just playing, um, but by, you know, kind of some concerted time uh, in the training space. I think these are, you know, the... Um, yeah, these are some some things that can be be improved over the course of an athlete's development. So this is all this is all part of the assessment, I assume, right? You've got all your video game measuring tools, you know, plugged up to the guy, and then you can see, oh, you know, um, I, I don't know, is it a, is it a left to right imbalance? Is it something at a hip joint upstream where you're saying like there's a weakness here or something? Maybe you know, speak a little bit to to how that actually works uh, before you identify it as an area of growth. Yeah. Um, so the you're you're right on. This all goes back to to our assessment, where um, you know, for especially for the first time we see an athlete um, when they walk through the door, or, or sorry, once they've completed the assessment process, um, just by virtue of having studied you know 600 folks in the NBA, we know where good, bad, and average lie. Um, and for a certain athlete, um, you know, let's say uh, you know there's an athlete who really struggles to generate force during this decelerative portion of the movement. Um, this becomes a, a training target for that athlete. So come the end of an assessment, every athlete's going to have their unique set of training targets. If you, you know, if you stumble into uh, to P3 this summer, um, what it will ultimately look like is you'll see you know, a number of guys going through training specific to what their biomechanical needs are. Um, and that, that, that's really where, uh, you know, where, where the training starts to get more, more nuanced. At this level, right, when these athletes are trying to squeeze that last you know, 3 4 5% out of their development, um, you know, we try and address those kind of individual targets in that sense. And, and how much progress can you make with an athlete if you say, here's an area of weakness or something and we want to improve on it? If you have him for, I don't know, six weeks, what's what's realistic versus over the long haul, you know, is, is the body or, or is our, I should say, maybe our methods of addressing the body, are they such that you can take a guy who has a legitimate weakness and maybe you know, make it a strength at some point. Yeah, I think that's the... Or is that the million-dollar question? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, probably at minimum for for some teams, I think. uh, Yeah, this really dives into our uh, kind of plasticity topic, right? So how much um, can we move the needle on these very granular granular targets, right? The uh, biomechanical factors that help dictate how effective an athlete is in the vertical or lateral plane, how much can we actually move the needle on that through training? And this is something that we've studied so far. Um, but I think, you look, you know, zooming out a little bit has big implications for uh, an athlete's developmental potential with respect to how, you know, their kind of physical gifts. Um, you know, these are the, the, the kind of questions that I think our data allows us to ask. And, you know, we're at tip of the iceberg right now. It's a, it's a question that we're, um, we're really interested to, to study. And early returns at this point suggest that, you know, there's a glass ceiling on certain measures and mm-hmm. there, uh, you know, there's certainly room to move on on others. So, you know, going back to, uh, maybe the vertical example that we started with earlier. Um, if you have two athletes who both jump 30 inches, they look good, right? These are both competent athletes uh, in the vertical plane. Um, but you know, of those, the, the factors that ultimately dictate vertical jump displacement, if one athlete is being held back by more plastic variables, we feel good about their ability to ultimately um, probably perform a little more competently as they develop, as they continue to, to, to train with their team. So what would be an example there when you say they're held back by 
plastic variables. You know, tra- translate that for us. What what actually um, is something that could hold an athlete back, or what is something that maybe could give an athlete, um, you know, a larger potential to grow, right? Someone comes in your door and you might have the ability to say, okay, this guy actually, we expect more growth because of X, Y, and Z. Sure. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stay on the kind of the vertical example for, um, for, for this one. I think, um, you know, when we do our big kind of multivariable regression studies on, uh, Ooh, you know, fancy. On, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> on the, uh, on uh, on these these measures, um, I think what we're seeing is that there tends to be kind of two variables that sort of float to the top as far as dictating whether or not guys are effective in the vertical plane or not. Those are uh, either concentric force output, so how hard an athlete pushes against the ground when they're flying vertically, um, but then also knee extension kinematics, so really how aggressively they can straighten their knee as they go through the end of that jump. Hmm. Um, so those those two you know two factors tend to be. Um, kind of the primary drivers of performance in the vertical plane. Um, is, is that mostly, I mean, if we're thinking about this from sort of like an everyday day standpoint, is that mostly the force output from your quads, right? Is, it, is, that, is that what it's coming down to, that, that whole process there? It, it, it's, it's tough to, for, right now it's tough for us to drill down okay. to that explicitly. I think, you know, force output is, you know, it, it, the, the measure of force that we study um, is like a composite spill out of force generated from hips, knees, ankles, and even got it, through, got uh, through the whole kind of kinematic chain. So it becomes a bit tough to unravel, but what we've seen... I know, I'm just more asking to, so people can sort of think about your process in drilling sure. in yeah, yeah, to identifying course. this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we're, um, what we're seeing between those, those two variables, though, the force output and the, the knee extension yep. parameters, um, is that in basketball players, in NBA players, the guys who basically do a lot of jumping for their work... Um, the athletes who you know maybe are are limited by uh, knee extension velocity or knee, ex- knee extension parameters, there tends to be more room to move in that domain. So hmm. uh, athletes who maybe you know again maybe check in as a little bit below average with respect to their vertical uh, vertical jump, but have um, you know certainly some room for improvement in that one particular area. We feel good about our ability to kind of move the needle on that um, distinct variable, whereas you know force output or certain other variables may be more difficult to change. Fascinating. So you could have someone with the same vertical leap, I think you said 30 inches or something yep, like that. Yep. Um, but if you had one athlete who was measuring lower on that knee extension plane, mm-hmm. then you might say, okay, we expect a larger increase over time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's I, I think, really cool. Yeah, that, that's where we think, um, look, we, we can say, uh, and again, all this is in its infancy at this stage. But if we can say, hey, based on these two guys who tend to jump the same, these underpinning factors seem much more you know, malleable for athlete A than athlete B. And you know, this gets really interesting around pre-draft time or something along those lines when uh, you know, your job, well, not my job, but uh, you know, <laughs> a, a, a team's job is to assess uh, not just what a player looks like today, but ultimately what they could look like. Um, and I, th- I think um, you know, seeing who... Uh, maybe has the physical tool to compete day one, but then also on day uh, day hundred are, you know, are are important questions for them to ask. So you made that fancy reference earlier to regression analysis. Uh, is it safe to say that you guys are collecting enough data that what you're trying to do is say, you know, what are the predictors? What are the salient factors here that are going to predict maybe not just growth in vertical jump improvement or something like that, but maybe even something like injury prevention going forward. Am I, am I in the right ballpark? Spot on. Um, that's, yeah, that, that's really where we're, um, yeah, where we try to take our, our information. Again, our, our DNA is training an athlete, right? And so for us, it all uh, kind of dials back to how can we interpret this information in, in front of us uh, and use it to make an informed developmental program for this athlete. But then we can step back and ask some more, uh, yeah, maybe just more sophisticated questions like, um, can we stratify a risk of knee injury or ankle injury or back injury? Or, you know, can we, you know, stratify, you know, aptitude in the vertical plane or lateral plane, things along those lines. Uh, those tend to be uh, the directions that we spend most of our time now with um, with our data at this stage. Um, anything, uh, just curious, thinking about certain players, I've seen this pop up with, anything on, say, like, landing mechanics do you guys look at that as you know okay we we've got you hooked up 
to the systems, right? And so we can look at how you ju- not only jump, but now how you land, and then what is going through the the force and the energy and all that stuff, all those fancy physics things that you're yep. gonna you're yep. gonna get into, um, that are going through your you know your muscles and your joints when you land, and maybe flag guys for um, you know higher risk of injury that way. Yeah, uh, that's that's where we spend uh most of our time at this point that, that, that's really where um <laughs> you guys you know, are busy yeah yeah for for us it look it's it's about uh trying to make research actionable right you know for for us um again the you know doing research does nothing if we can't use it to make uh our athletes better or help uh you know a team staff take care of their athlete um more effectively so for us um yeah studying how athletes land from a jump how athletes attenuate force um is a real uh you know a really um, important component to assessing risk of injury. We just finished a big uh, traumatic knee injury study um, where we're looking at, uh, yeah, kind of prospective risk of um, of, of injury to, to the knee in, in NBA athletes. And, um, yeah, I think there are some very, um, you know, fortunately for us, uh, actionable things that can be pulled out of it. Come the end of the study, we know sort of what the the drivers from our model are that help assess prospective injury. Ooh, can you share those? What are uh, yeah, what are the drivers? Yeah, I mean, simply um, so the you know the knee, right? Just by virtue of its location, right, is kind of caught in between the hip and the ankle or the foot. Um, so the knee is sort of the unfortunate recipient of mechanics that go wrong either above or below it. Um, so you know, a lot of these uh, variables that we're seeing pop out of this study are things like. Um, an athlete's ability to use their hip joint musculature to decelerate when landing from a jump. Hmm. So basically, how well do you how how well do your hips help uh, slow you down when you're landing from a jump? So you're landing from the jump. Your ankles are taking some of that. Yep. Your knees are taking some of that, and your hips are taking some of that. So yep. the better your hips can help sort of displace that force, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right? 100%. Then right. the, the less it's going to strain the knee. Definitely, yeah. right? So there, there's a big kind of deceleration component through the hip. Um, your ability to kind of control sort of how your thigh or your femur rotates. Mm. Um, and then same thing through the foot, right? You know, naturally when an athlete lands and jumps, there's some inherent rotation through the foot. Excessive rotation can place, uh, you know, the knee in a pretty precarious position at that point. So um, what we want to, you know, what we, what we were able to pull out of this model was, um, you know, ultimately there's this kind of complex multifactorial um, kind of series of mechanical factors that are going to either elevate or mitigate an athlete's risk of injury. Um, but I think fortunately what we're seeing is that many of these things are trainable to a degree. So if we can, f- you know, find someone hopefully before this becomes an issue, um, then the idea is that we should be able to, you know, to train these to some degree and, you know, again, hopefully, uh, you know, mitigate any risk of injury moving forward. That is fascinating. I think, uh, and again, to me, when I think about this, this is something that most people never put in the category of athleticism, Yeah. right? And yet this concept, just even what you were just describing about your, like your hip performance uh, I go back to my background. Yeah. It's you're still in your central nervous system. Sure. You're still talking about how your brain interacts with these parts of your body and these signals and the electrical signals. And it's like if you have inefficiencies in certain areas, those inefficiencies or those imbalances open you up to injuries in other areas. And I, I mean, at least for me, I think of that as part of athleticism uh, and the ability to have a system that performs at high high levels is really efficient. And is balanced. So, in other words, your muscles work together really well. Um, not only can you jump, but you can land. Not only can you accelerate, but you can decelerate. Right. And when you do that, you don't, you know, break something or, yeah. or snap something off, which is my specialty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, you're you're right on. And uh, look, I think anyone who's played, you know, a sport seriously for any amount of time has, you know, run into the, you know, the injury bug at some point. Literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, you know, really, what we there's an element of chance to every injury that occurs, which is what we try and stop short of saying we're going to predict injury because that's that's not the game. But you know we're we're just here trying to tinker with probabilities at that right. point. Um, and look, the idea is if we can pull out the variables that are more uh, or that may make you more susceptible to a certain type of injury, if we can find these ahead of time, then look, the working backwards, we should be able to address these through training and hopefully at least reduce that risk of injury. But you know, as as uh, as you are well aware, it doesn't always. <laughs> doesn't always happen uh, quickly enough. Maybe. No, no. And, and you know, there's some probably genetic foundation, you know, to a guy. Uh, and then there's also this confounding idea that when someone walks into your gym in Santa Barbara, 
Um, you can't tell if it's genetics because they've had they've been building up a certain movement pattern or something for like 17 or 18 years before you ever see them, right? Yeah, yeah. The you know this just gets into nature versus nurture, yeah. Um, which uh, yeah is, is is an incredibly difficult thing to unravel and you know we could probably spend three or four pods and not scratch the surface on it but yeah. uh it's look there there's an element of uh genetics that comes into you know every athlete that we see walk through the door right these guys are all uh genetic outliers in some capacity um but you know the nurture side of it how they um you know take care of their body or how they ultimately go about uh honing their development kind of probably dictates to a degree where they fall within that uh you know nature-driven or genetic window that they have. So let's come back to someone like Zion, who we mentioned earlier. And there's this discussion this year about New Orleans working to rebuild his gait, yep. right, his, his his walking patterns. And he's got this sort of extreme side to side. I'm not even sure. How would you characterize his his, his walk? Yeah, it's I'm a, a not. strut? Uh, yeah, yeah, strut's fair. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a gait, uh, <laughs> a gaitologist. Yes. What is a good... It's a good term for a gate specialist. We'll go with that. Um, yeah. But th- there's right this idea that New Orleans is working to rebuild his gate mechanics because it's going to help with things like entry- injury right. prevention. It's going to sure. help with performance. Um, so how would you how would you go about like maybe talk to that process a little bit? I'm not sure it's something you guys specialize in specifically, but plug that into this conversation we're having about athleticism where if you have these certain habits um, that are more likely to create problems or limit performance, you know, how do you identify them? And then what can you do? What would be the process there to actually solve that? And then I think the thing that people probably care most about is how long does it take? Yeah, it's, uh, so we, you know, most of our studies, you know, center around plyometrics or jumping, right? Different, different types of jumps that an athlete does again, vertically, laterally, you name it. Um, so we don't do much explicitly with, uh, gait analysis. Um, but I think the, the questions that, that we receive are, are very similar in nature. It's, you know, we, this kid's 27 years old. Uh, you know, he's jumped the same way since he started playing basketball. So he's done thousands of jumps over the course of his lifetime. Um, you know, how much can you really shift, uh, kind of this like mechanical makeup of, um, of the athlete. And I think it's, it's a, it's, it's the fair, it's a fair question to ask. I think, um, you know, regardless of what, uh, pattern you're looking to shift, whether it's a jump, whether it's gate, you name it. Um, I think everyone in the sports science realm would probably agree that you don't want wholesale changes in mechanics, yeah, yeah. right? Um, cause then you start to introduce, um, you know, you start to introduce other factors that may elevate risk of injury to another part of the body that the body, you know, to this point just hasn't had to withstand yet. So it's, you know, it's exposed to completely new forces at that point. And then, you know, again, that injury uh, risk starts to increase elsewhere, which is also problematic at that point. Right. And, and, and listeners have heard me talk about this with shot mechanics, the same concept right. where you wouldn't necessarily take a guy's shot and completely overhaul it because there's, there's a lot of stuff happening in his nervous system and in his mind communicating to his arms and his body. But what you might do, and you saw this with New, uh, New Orleans, we're back on New Orleans, sure. um, with shooting coach Fred Vincent this year and what he was able to do with both Brandon Ingram and, and Lonzo Ball. Ingram, it's very subtle changes with an incredible improvement. Lonzo, really nice improvement as well, sort of from a below average to a competency level. But in his case, you don't take a hitchy, unique, jerky shot and completely rebuild it. You try to do things like, okay, let's take a little of the hitch out of it. Right. Let's tuck the elbow. Um, let's change the way we set up our feet. And this is going to, to your point, um, not rebuild an entire thing where you put the whole system at risk. You'd basically right. be asking him you know, to learn how to, no pun intended with Zion, but to learn how to how to walk again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, uh, yeah, again, not knowing exactly what's, you know, when, you know, what their, what the, the plan is in, in New Orleans, my guess is, um, you know, you'll see kind of measurable, but conservative for, you know, conservative, but consistent improvements in, uh, in his ability to, you know, in, in his gait or whatever we're, we're talking about. The other, the other big, uh, the other big topic I wanted to sort of pick your brain on while you're in here is, the idea of workload. And I think it connects to everything we've just been speaking to around athleticism and then injury prevention in the sense that workload to me, and I've, I've done an entire podcast on the concept of load management, which maybe isn't the best term. Sure. Um, I know you have some thoughts on that, but you know, workload to me is really about 
handling the stress response we put on our body in athletic, I mean, all these athletic movements is not just your 40 yard dash and right. your vertical leap, right? It's all of this stuff and then the accumulation of that stress and then how your body responds to that. So maybe uh, speak a little bit at, at first to maybe a better way to define that topic and sort of how it plugs into this conversation. And then from there, we can talk about um, differences across uh, athletes. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, look, it, it, is a, it is a very relevant topic. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's a part of the discussion that maybe needs a little reframing, I think, in, in our opinion, um, where at this point, um, look, measuring workload for an athlete has really gained... Uh, you know, not popularity so much, but it's just become much more common in you know in in, in everyday discussions about the NBA. You mean like um, running guys into the ground yeah. forty two minutes a night? Yes. isn't the greatest idea. Well, yeah, that, that's a that that's that's step one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think the way we like to approach this um, approach this problem is that there there are probably two parts of the equation when it comes to uh, elevating risk for an athlete when it comes to to risk of injury. We like to think that starting with a mechanical baseline is is, is where um, is where we tend to operate, right? So when you see an athlete day one, what we do with every athlete over the course of their assessment is we have an understanding of what their biomechanical makeup is um, that predisposes them to injury, you know, at various parts of their body depending on how they test. So in my case, most of my body. Yes, yeah. you'd be glowing red <laughs> everywhere. Uh, I think the uh, you know. Fatigue, right, or, or the, the the stress that an athlete is faced with, uh, acts on that mechanical baseline, right? So, you know, depending on where an athlete's starting point is, how much they play, you know, how much, you know, essentially how much stress is applied to the body will manifest itself in different ways at that point. Um, so, I think there there's two parts of the equation. The one we we run into regularly in season, which is when you know all the the lights and cameras are on, uh, is you know load management, which, you know, really just means kind of resting so that an athlete's not overexerted. Um, but I think that's, that, that's only about half the discussion at this point. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking of maybe like a car and it's shocks, right? It's for shock absorption. And so different cars have, can take different levels of shock absorptions. And that's the variety we see across athletes. But then much like if you took a car out, depending on the terrain and the way you drove it, you would tax it in a different way. And so I think you guys, you, you mentioned earlier before we were recording um, that you guys do see different varieties of, you know, this athlete can handle a larger load. This athlete can handle a smaller workload. The way they respond to stress is different, but in either case, you don't want to move an athlete into the red because then um, not only do injury risks increase, but then performance, I imagine decreases as well. Yeah. 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 Certainly. I think um, that's yeah, you nailed it, right? So for um, you know, for for us, we want to start with kind of this clean mechanical baseline, and then uh, you know, work backwards towards how that fatigue may impact an athlete, right? There was um, you know, the the example that sort of crystallized this for for us um, was we had uh, an athlete come through during the pre-draft process. This is um, you know, a, a few years back at this point, um, went through the pre-draft process. You know, day one on the assessment, by and large. Uh, mechanically looks pretty tucked in. It has a couple, uh, you know, notable outliers for, um, you know, injury risk related to the knee. Um, but makes their pre-draft, does well, goes off to his team, ends up with a team uh, who just tends to value uh, kind of skill development uh, more so than physical development at mm. that point. Um, played a lot during his rookie year, probably a lot more than he was expecting. Um, came, you know, came back to... Uh, to us in the immediate aftermath of the season, um, and you know, it was just around for for a day to get reassessed, um, and looking at the you know pre post results, um, you know, before his rookie season and afterward, um, you saw wild differences between these mechanical oh, wow. measures. Which look the the, the biomechanical of assessment of an athlete oftentimes looks like a fingerprint, right? These things are awfully repeatable in most instances. But what we saw with him was this wild mechanical degradation. You know, brought on uh, in large part, we think, due to an 82-game schedule, and you know, just being kind of ground into the into or run into the ground at that point. So, um, you know, we saw especially the factors around the knee really start to uh, start to to light up for him, and you know, real unfortunate incident um, where back, you know, again he was around for a couple of days, back to you know, back to the team, and then had a you know traumatic knee injury afterward, which. Um, you know, kind of really kind of yeah derailed the rest of that off season. Man, that's unfortunate. But but it's fascinating. Um, 
And I want to dig into this idea of what you were talking about with the mechanical output, because as you explained to me earlier, I think this is an incredible insight to see just how much clarity you can get here. You, you don't necessarily measure everything related to an athlete's stress. So you don't, you, you know, you don't have like sleep right. as an input. Um, you don't have like cardiovascular performance necessarily, right? As right. an input. Correct. Yep. Right. So there, there are parts of this equation that you don't have, but you can almost view those as a black box. And when you can measure the mechanical output of all these things we've been alluding to in this podcast around athleticism and joint performance and the hip and the knee, and they come in and all of a sudden there's a massive degradation, you can take that as a signal that the whole system is been strained and isn't performing the way it needs to perform. And what I think is so, stop me at any point if I'm, no, if I'm going off no, base you're here, great. trying to regurgitate. <laughs> um, and, and so what I think is so fascinating about this is you can really then pinpoint like, hey, in this particular player, what has happened is, remember that thing um, Eric said earlier about the knee being related to the hip or the ankle. Well, now you can come back at the end of the season, and if your workload is in is, is you've been overtaxed, all of a sudden your supporting systems, your ankle and your hip, aren't performing very well. Right. Then your knee is going to be susceptible to yeah yeah problems. yeah, and that's that's spot on. And I think what we're um, you know what we're still studying, but what we're seeing is that how that fatigue manifests itself for each athlete is different, right? So for this right. one particular athlete, we saw you know these risk factors at the knee really you know really balloon. Um, but other guys can go through the same uh, kind of, you know, the, the same stress or the same workload, uh, and it'll manifest itself differently, right? There are just, um, you know, there are these mechanical factors that start with this baseline um, that probably give some indication as to where that fatigue is going to, you know, going to, uh, going to attack the most. I want to, I want to hammer that last point home because I think it gets lost in the discussion around um, this player's resting and load management and back in my day this thing was different yeah. and so just please clarify for everyone it is different for different athletes there's no specific you don't say this guy ran x many miles um you know player a ran x many miles player b ran x many miles and therefore they both have the same um vulnerability to injury they both have the same degradation in their performance it doesn't work like that it's different from athlete to athlete right yeah yeah there's there's no question um you know really the the components that go into those outputs right the the minutes or whatnot um movement cutting yeah deceleration time decelerations are tough on the body yeah 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 um things along those lines so you know there 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 are these different factors that um can really uh yeah make two guys who played 35 minutes look wildly different from each other i think you know the probably the the simplest or maybe cleanest example is uh, is a guy like LeBron, who we you know we've never studied, but uh, you know the amount of minutes he's been able to play and you know withstand over the course of his career is wild. And if we put you know so if we line any number of NBA guys up next to him and put them through the same workload, they probably would not respond the same way physically that he has. So Eric, you've got some fancy degrees, <laughs> and you've been invoking physics. Can you please confirm that LeBron James is a cyborg? <laughs> is, is he completely human? Does he have mechanical parts? How has he been able to do this? I, I wish we knew. I wish we knew. Hopefully we'll we'll find out one day. But yeah, cannot confirm or deny at this he, stage. My, my thing, he always has, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit. You have a genetic component and you have a, a component to your environment. And I think in his case, he's just been fantastic on both, right? He clearly seems built like an athlete that is just as sturdy as could possibly be. And then he's put so much. I mean, what does he spend like a million dollars a year or something on yeah. uh, on body upkeep? Yeah. And, and clearly, for most of his career, has prioritized taking care of his body. And here at thirty five, um, I even just think about you know some athletes rolling their ankles, and then when it happens to him, and you're like, oh, he's going to miss a couple games, and just like five minutes later, yeah. he's back to normal. It's yeah, it's wild. Yeah. So, how does that work? I <laughs> wish we knew. Have, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have much to add on that one. Sadly, wish we knew. Shoot. So where do you think all this, I think the last topic before we get out of here, where do you think this is sort of going in the future? What's the, what's the next phase of this? What's the next step of this? Do we get more information on athletes? Do we get, um, you know, more refined on data prevention? Like what, what is going to happen 
moving forward when it comes to not only our understanding of athleticism, but the the work we can do within each sort of subcomponent of functional basketball athleticism. Yeah, I it's a yeah you know, it's a really fascinating subject to you know try and peel apart. I think at at this stage, you know, I've been at P three for for eight years, um, and it uh, you know it really. Um, you know, we've been able to see a lot of different sports evolve uh, in their you know, almost acceptance of um, sports science, uh, and you know, basketball has changed a ton. Um, and I, I think um, you know, if we want to use the you know load management example uh, as a, as a case study here, I think what th- what we're seeing right now is that a lot of these various uh, topics are discussed in silos. Right? It's hmm. you look at sleep, you look at uh, biomechanics, you look at uh, you know, stress or workload on an athlete. But yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of value moving forward from starting to bleed these silos together. Um, right now, I don't think any uh, one of these silos individually will do uh, as good a job of, you know, assessing an athlete's current state as bleeding them together will. Um, so my guess is, you know, you're going to see, um, you know, teams and groups get a bit more savvy with how, um, yeah, how they start to really connect the dots between um, these different systems that are measured, again, right now, more or less separately. Um, but, you know, this ultimately starts to bleed into uh, a lot of, like, kind of real big topics that we really enjoy, right? Things like, um, like, in the same way that we use our data set for uh, determining what physical targets you should work on, we can start to think about developmental potential, or we can start to think about these mm. other factors that have, uh, you know, maybe more um, you know, drafting or scouting implications versus, uh, you know, just purely kind of training or development questions. So you, if you had new data and you had richer data and instead of just, you know, Hey, we've got vertical and horizontal plane and acceleration and deceleration type of stuff you guys really specialize in, you start to combine it with other areas of athletic performance, recovery, sleep, I mean, diet, you could, you could fold in all kinds of things. Right. And then in theory, when a, when a draft pick, comes to your door and you evaluate him, you could look at him and say, wait a second, the guy's been eating, um, you know, uh, root vegetables and sleeping four hours a night. You know, maybe, maybe there's a larger capacity for growth there. Back to that concept of plasticity. Uh, am I going in the right direction of where we can expect things in the future? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, you know, when we tend to uh, interact with athletes over the the pre-draft process, which is kind of what we're referencing now. Um, it's been really interesting to see sort of the evolution of that athlete over the past eight years where hmm. uh, maybe part of it's generational, but um, there's, uh, you know, there's a much, um, you know, kind of greater uh, value placed on data and being data savvy. And that pertains to data on, you know, wearables or, th- or things of that right. nature. So it's like the measure, measure, improve. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think we're you know we're seeing that you know really come from uh, you know from from the athlete side as well. So I, I would be you know I wouldn't be surprised to see um, yeah to see that become a, a you know more um, yeah just even even more a part of the the common discourse when it comes to you know to an athlete's development. Okay, so what else have we missed uh, about athleticism? Is there any component that I haven't touched on that you think is worth mentioning or? you know, maybe bring us back home with a, a broader definition than what I presented at the top of the show. Just let's make sure we cross our, cross our T's and dot our I's. That's what you yeah. do, right? You cross T's and dot I's. That's uh, sounds right. That's the one I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think, look, when we started at the, you know, at, at the start of the, the pod, what we, um, or what you referenced were again, these very traditional or narrow measures of what makes an athlete a good athlete, right? And the, you know, just too often we get, uh, enamored with the guys who can jump 40 inches or, or more. And it's, it's understandable. It still takes our breath away. And we see, you know, we see, you know, more than a handful of these guys. Um, but I think when we start to think about the, uh, actions that an NBA player needs to, uh, you know, really excel at over the course of a game, we're talking about acceleration, but we're talking about deceleration, the Luca Harden example, um, you know, vertical, you know, big study we did, uh, initially was looking at what physical systems drive vertical plane movers, right? The, mm. the guys who excel there, the Levines, the, the Andrew Wiggins of the world uh, versus lateral plane guys. And these are, you know, these tend to be, um, you know, more uh, sleeper style or, uh, you know, deep cuts for, for some of these guys, if you will. So, so if someone on the street asks you, who's a better athlete? And you can even say, who's a better basketball athlete? Andrew Wiggins or Steve Nash? 
what would you, and, and you know assume that you know a little about each uh, sort of how would you go about answering that because I can tell you from experience that players who tend to you know not be really explosive jump really high these kind of classical things that fit into that narrow definition they are put in a different box like Larry Bird's not a good athlete or Steve right. Nash is not a good athlete um, how, how would you respond to that uh, yeah well my my instinct would be to suggest that we've never seen Steve Nash before so we can't really comment on on what that one that what that would look like uh, so I'd probably try and back out of that argument at first but well what if uh, I for, what if I forced you yeah, to go if, out, if outside the boundaries <laughs> of p3 p3 measuring tools yeah if we're yeah. Uh, holding my hand to the fire uh, yeah I think again not to really go you know uh, too deep on the on, on the physics behind it but there have to be there are Newtonian physics behind um, why athletes are able to do what they do. That relates to risk of injury, like we discussed, but it also relates to performance. There are some things that even though uh, you wouldn't you know, maybe know to look for it or think to look for it, we certainly didn't, like with uh, Nikola Jokic. Yeah. Um, there are these parameters that are probably important for a basketball player that we just don't commonly see. And for uh, someone like Steve Nash probably possessed a few of those that um, if we were able to get, you know, get some numbers on them, we'd be able to see uh, you know, something along those lines. I always... Uh, yeah, I maybe too frequently talk about uh, uh, you know an athlete who really kind of crystallized this for me because um, it was very early on in my uh, time at P3, but was uh, Matthew Dellavedova when he came in. Delhi, yeah, Delhi, yeah. a Delhi reference. Uh, back, uh, you know, when he was getting ready for for the draft, and uh, when we went through the assessment with him. You know, maybe as you know, everyone would expect, you know, competent vertically, but you know where he really excelled was his ability to generate force in the lateral plane. His ability to accelerate laterally was. Uh, you know, elite, right? It, it, it was incredible. Um, and, you know, we tend to associate that with, you know, an athlete's at least potential or ability to play defense at that point. Mm. Um, and so for, for him, this was him coming out of St. Mary's at that point. Um, that was just a really interesting kind of alert that if you cast a wide enough net and you see, uh, you know, if, if you look at enough of these variables, and if, again, if the, um, the rationale behind a lot of the tests maybe, um, you know, is sound, uh, you'll be able to identify some some tools that these guys have that maybe you don't you know we aren't accustomed to looking for. Interesting. The place I was trying to to get you to go with <laughs> Nash, besides um, besides things that I would cue in on, like what we alluded to earlier with Jokic mapping the court and sure. reflexes and things like that. Obviously, to to shoot, he's one of the greatest shooters ever. You need incredible hand eye coordination right. and all that stuff. Um, and I do think those are part of this discussion, but. Uh, I was even thinking with him, the thing that always jumped out to me and a lot of coaches and analysts with keen eyes would discuss was balance yeah, and how that plugs into what we've talked about today, coordination, balance, how that fits in the dynamic dance and the push and pull, I guess pun intended, between <laughs> acceleration and deceleration and your ability to move in either direction right. in the horizontal plane. Sure. Um, and those are just like such core things to basketball. And so you think about Nash, again, uh, he doesn't jump high. He's not fast. He's he's not that tall. Right. Um, and yet his ability to, now they use it as a verb, his ability to Nash into the paint <laughs> like Wayne Gretzky, yeah, yeah. circle under the basket and yeah. never lose his dribble and stay on balance. And then those little, he had a step back. Yeah. Right? So yeah, he's in yeah, this yeah, same yeah. family of like guys creating space in ways that we think of as unorthodox, but yeah. he could hit the brakes he could take a dribble back, and he's creating space over taller players. And man, when he was on, um, he would just cook them yeah. that way in the mid range. So yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. There, there, there's no question. I think you're uh, you're right on. When we talk about uh, balance in house, typically we talk about you know we we refer to it as stability. Um, so stability through the hip, through the trunk, um, and these are you know yeah these are probably areas where uh, you know we see the guys who have good balance, especially when they're playing, they tend to excel in in, in this area as well. Hmm. Yeah. Do you do you feel comfortable with an eye test on um, historical players? Like if when you turn Michael Jordan film on, do you do you go, oh boy, he must have had you know X? If we could have hooked him up, I would predict Y. I think uh, I try to uh, you know when when we're watching a game, whether it's happening today or historically, uh, try to just appreciate it for, just for what it is. It. Yeah. Try to shut it off. <laughs> it's not always easy to do, um, especially when we know when we know the guy and we know maybe we're some holes in the game are, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we try to we, we try to limit uh, the amount of physics we're we're pumping into basketball. Well, this is fascinating, uh, at least to me. I hope other people 
<laughs> are are enjoying it. We've only had three or four Newtonian physics references. We tried to keep them low. Um, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time and and adding so much color to this topic. This is a conversation I've wanted to have for a while. Where can people find you, follow you? You know, now is the time to to plug away. Yeah. Uh, so for you know for for P three social media um, on Twitter and Instagram, it's P three Sports Science, um, and that's where we'll you know periodically throw out uh, you know various topics we're researching or you know sessions that our athletes are doing. Um, so that, that's probably the best place to find a lot of the the work that we're uh, we're doing right now. Hope you enjoyed that one. Big thanks to Eric for coming in live in studio in LA to record that conversation about athleticism. Also, again, back to athleticism, big thanks to The Athletic for sponsoring this episode. You can check them out, get 50% off and a free week trial at theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That's a great way to support this show. Another fantastic way to support this show is by contributing directly over at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. It's patreon.com slash thinking basketball you head over there there are different tiers of subscription you'll find different access we have things like podcast post shows occasionally some private videos uh there's a stream of content monthly that is produced written articles or extra research that doesn't make it into podcasts or video productions on youtube so that's a fantastic way to support thanks to everybody over there who supported contributing in the Discord community we have and asking great questions and sometimes coming up with wonderful ideas that uh, lead to podcast episodes. So that is it for this one. Uh, Thanks for listening all the way to the end. And as always, I hope that you are all having a great day.